0: Well, good morning again, friends, and welcome back for yet another week and the second to last week of our Lenten sermon series that we have been in for, by the last four weeks or so, a sermon series entitled, Good News for Bad Christians. Good News for Bad Christians. Over the course of these last several weeks, one of the things that we've been doing in preparation for Easter is celebrating the really, really good news That when we are not the Christians we want to be, the Christians we hope to be, when we fall into spiritual ruts and we're not as obedient or not as present, not as engaged as we like to be spiritually, that God's reaction to us is not to write us off, it's not to cancel us, it's not to quit on us or give up on us, but it is to find ways to win us back. And so, over the course of the last several weeks, we've talked about all kinds of different examples of this. We've talked about uh, what happens and how does God reach us when we fall into hypocrisy, or disobedience, or judgmentalism, or pride—you name it. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about yet another, yet another type of sort of behavior, another sort of example of a spiritual rut we fall into from time and time again, and how God reacts. To those particular seasons. And today, that particular experience we're going to discuss is doubt. Doubt. Now, here at the onset, one of the things that I want to clarify is I actually think that there's several different kinds of doubt. There's several different types of doubt that we might fall into or have experience with in our spiritual lives. Here they are. Here they are. In my assessment, there's three. Uh, Number one, uh, you might go through a type of doubt where you begin to doubt and question God's existence altogether. So this is an existential doubt. This is an intellectual doubt. You have moments, or maybe for you, pretty regularly, you struggle to believe whether or not God exists at all. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not been your experience. Maybe for you, it's been the second one your experience with doubt has been at different points and different uh, moments of your journey, you have had doubts and questions about God's personality. Meaning, you had uh, one sort of picture of Jesus, one picture of God painted for you growing up at home or at church, and then you started living life and you began to have more and more questions, more and more struggles, reconciling that picture of God with the real world. Or, Maybe neither of those are your journey. Maybe for you, it's, you've had these experiences where maybe it was in deep suffering. Maybe it was during a period of prolonged waiting. You doubted God's presence. You questioned whether or not God even cared about you and what you were going through. Now, I think this is an important exercise, so dive divulge me just for a quick moment. Please, quick a show of hands. How many of you, at at least one point in your spiritual journey, you've experienced one of these types of doubt? Raise your hand. Many of us. Many of us. Most of us. Most of us. And so here's the other thing I want to make sure we clarify here at the beginning of this sermon. This week, this conversation on, you know, bad Christians or bad Christian behavior, this one is a little bit different than all the rest that we've covered so far in this particular way. In my experience, doubt doesn't make you a bad Christian. It just makes you feel like one. Catch the difference? Doubt does not make you a bad Christian. It just makes you feel like one. And sometimes you're made to feel like one from someone else, right? You bring your doubts, you bring your questions, you bring your struggles to another person of faith and they go, "Mm mmm, they shame you, they guilt you, and you walk away feeling like, oh my gosh, I failed God. God doesn't want anything to do with me. I can't, I'm struggling to believe. It's a me problem. But what I would argue, and again, this is one of the things that, if you don't hear anything else I say to you today, here at the jump, I want to make sure you hear very t- uh, two very, very clear things from me. The first of which is this. When you go through doubt, doubt does not make you different. It doesn't make you abnormal. It makes you normal. It makes you human. Kyle, but like, how do you know? Uh, Because if you actually read uh, this book, and if you actually read about the characters in this book, you will find countless examples of people going through all kinds of different experiences with doubt. Don't believe me? Go home and read the Psalms. The psalms are hilarious because the psalms, there's like, they're journal entries, so they're like private prayers that David and other people have written, and sometimes you catch them on a good day, and they're like, I believe in the Lord, and we're all close, and I hold hands with Jesus, and it's wonderful, and then the very next psalm is like, where are you? What the heck is going on? They're going to kill me. Show up, please. Job is an entire, made an entire book out of it. And let us not forget the very person you claim to worship. When Jesus was hanging, bleeding, and dying on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? What are you doing? In addition to those, all of our spiritual heroes speak to this, and they testify to this. C.S. Lewis talked about having doubt on a regular basis. Martin Luther, Mother Teresa... Pope Francis himself or if you guys are on like close speaking terms Pope Frank Pope Frank had this to say he wrote this recently he said who among us everybody everybody who among us has not experienced insecurity loss or even doubts on their journey of faith everyone we've experienced this we've all experienced this me too it's part of our journey of faith it's part of our lives so when you doubt It makes you normal, makes you human. And I'm gonna go one click further today because I not only believe that doubt is a normal part of our Christian lives, I also believe it's healthy. I think it's healthy. Now you gotta strike the balance. You gotta strike the balance. Too much doubt, it's like wasabi on sushi. Too much (laughs) will torch your insides. Um, But just enough, it's nice. Uh, But too much, too much doubt, uh, it causes you to abandon your faith, forsake your faith, and make an idol of your own intellect and understanding. You know everything. You don't need nobody else's help. But too little doubt, not enough doubt, leaves you with a stale, unchallenged, irrational faith. I also liken it to fighting in relationships. So those of you who are married or those of you who are in relationships, I'm one of those people who believes that fighting is kind of good. Pray for my wife, because she would even say that Kyle enjoys it from time to time. And I kind of do. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, you know, it's getting kind of stale in here, so I'm going to pick a fight. Because what does fighting do? Those of you who are in relationships or you've been in a relationship, what, a, what, is, what do fights do? Fights prove, number one, you actually care. You actually care about the relationship, that you're willing to speak about it, battle for it, and number two, you value honesty. That in your relationship, you would rather have a full blown argument in the middle of target self checkout line <laughs> than end up with a relationship where you just hide everything. You mask everything until it blows up and you hate the other person. And the other thing we know about fighting is that if you do it well, <laughs> keywords, if you do it well, it can actually bring you closer. And so very, very similar to faith, if we can learn how to fight well, wrestle well with God, you'll actually end up on the other side with a deeper, richer faith than you had before. Case in point, our story for today. So, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along as we dissect this passage today, please do so. Go ahead and uh, turn over to John chapter 20. Uh, If you've got your Bibles or if you've uh, got electronic devices and you want to sort of follow along, we're going to be camped out starting in verse 24. And just to give all of us a little bit of context as to what was happening in the story that Joy just read a couple moments ago is where we are in the Gospels is this story is taking place almost immediately after Jesus' death and like the resurrection is like in process, so it's about to happen, and so what we, the scene is all the disciples are gathered, and they're trying to figure out, okay, so Jesus is dead, and we, he said he's going to come back, and we really know what's happening, and like what's going on, and what's next, and Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. Jesus appears to his friends. Now, did you catch this? Amongst them, though, Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there, It says that uh, Thomas, uh, one of the the 12, was not with the disciples. And so we can read that and we can say, oh, maybe this is just coincidental. Maybe he was just running errands. Maybe he had a colonoscopy appointment to keep. You can't skip those. You cannot skip those. (laughs) Or maybe. Or maybe. He was done. He was done. Listen. He, I, you know, Jesus, he's up until this point, Jesus, I had questions. I've been a little skeptical. I've stuck with you. But then you went off and died. I'm done. We're done. And so when Jesus appears to the disciples, what happens is the disciples then run to Thomas. They find Thomas and say, yo, 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 like, actually, guess what? He's alive. Like, he's alive. Everything he promised, everything he said was going to happen, it came true. Like, he's here. He's alive. And I love, Thomas is the cynical one of the bunch. Anyone love sarcasm? That's Thomas. So Thomas goes, okay, well, I'll believe if I get to put my finger in the wounds left by his nails and put my hand into his side. That's when I'll believe. And I almost imagine he was just being snarky and sarcastic and had no intention of actually ever following through with this. And this is just a good lesson of be really careful what you pray for. Because then Jesus shows up and says, here you go, Thomas. It's all open for you. Stick your finger right in there. Here we are. It's gross. Makes you a little bit of want to vomit. But then you look past it. And I'll tell you what. What? What's so powerful about this story? What's so powerful about Jesus' willingness to do that for Thomas? Is it proves two things. Two things. The first of which is that contrary to what church and religious folks like to say sometimes, skeptics will always have a place in God's family. Always. They'll always have a place at the table. The ones with all the questions the ones that struggle intellectually, they'll always have a place in God's family. And I love this so much because it's so non-egotistical of Jesus. If Jesus had a massive ego, Jesus would have been just like, forget you, you don't believe in me, I don't believe in you, <clears throat> and kick him out, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, and this is the second thing I think this story proves so powerfully, is that instead of being offended by our doubts, offended by our cynicism, offended by our questions, God has already moved past them trying to devise plans to answer them, to speak to them, to address them in really tangible ways. That's what the story of Thomas proves. That's what the story of Thomas tells to us. And so let's go ahead and break it down. At the very beginning of this sermon, I said there's three types of doubts, three types of, three experiences of doubt. So How does God engage, how does God answer each of those different types of doubts? Okay, let's go to the first one. So again, the first one was a sort of intellectual doubt, an existential doubt. Some of us, either we or we have people in our lives that for them, it's intellectual. It's like I can't even, most days, it's hard to even get there to believe that a God even exists, that a God is even out there. And what I love so much, what I love so much about this story, is that what Jesus is doing by way of this story with Thomas is he's saying if that's ever you, if that's ever you, if you feel like intellectually you've got a lot of questions and you don't know how to sort of line it up with science and all these different things, if that's you, what the story of Thomas is saying to do in those moments is, okay, ask for a sign. You you need proof, you need something intellectually to move along, ask for a sign. Now some of you who have been raised in church, you're like, um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, slow down, slow down. Woo, preacher. Um, I was told I'm not allowed to ask for signs. And it's conflicted, right? This is where it gets a little bit conflicted because you've got stories like Thomas that seem to be it's okay to ask for signs. You've got story in the Old Testament like Gideon. Gideon asks for a sign twice and gets it both times, right? So you've got those stories, but then you've also got stories where the Pharisees come along all persnooty at Jesus and go, we're not going to believe in you unless you prove it to us, you know, sort of thing. So you've got like the, and Jesus like sort of rebukes them in those moments. So, so what gives? What gives? Are we allowed to ask for signs or are we not? And I think when you see both in those both examples where God gives us permission and sort of pushes back, I think the thing that is speaking to me, the thing that that illuminates for me is the biggest thing we have to do before we ever ask for a sign is make sure you check your motive. Make sure you check your motive. That if you dare to ask God for a sign, if you need God to do something, to show you something, make sure you check your motives. Why? Because like no other time in history, we as the collective human species suffer from something called confirmation bias. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase before, confirmation bias. If you haven't, that's okay. Here's a picture. It's a picture book. Here we go. This is what confirmation bias is. Confirmation bias is going about your life in such a way where you only pay attention to, you only give value to, you only give credit to the facts that prove what you already believe in the first place. You see that? So you got objective facts. These are things that are just objective. They just happened. They're just out in the world. And then you've got all of your beliefs on the right-hand side. Confirmation bias is going, your, going about your entire life only paying attention to the facts that are right there in the middle of that Venn diagram. And you see this everywhere, don't you? You see it none other than politics. All the time, people are like, nope, I believe this, and this, and this, and this, and they don't pay a shred of attention to all the things that they also believe that run directly in contradiction to those things or that platform. You see this in relationships. You see this in relationships. That if you come into a relationship, and maybe, and I want to be sensitive here, maybe for you, you've got a lot of insecurity, you've got a lot of wounds, you've got a lot of baggage, maybe you were abandoned or betrayed or cheated on, and so you go into every relationship, and part of your defense mechanism is to sort of believe, like, "Mm, nope, nope, like, just all people cheat. That's what they do. That's all they cheat. And so what you do for the duration of that relationship is you always just look for things that prove what you already believe to be true. So when they ghost you on a text message... You're like, yep, see, no one can be trusted. They're all out there just cheating on me all day long. You're just looking for evidence to prove what you already believe. And friends, the same thing can happen in faith. In fact, it happens in faith all the time. And so I'm serious, if this is for you, if you are someone who suffers from this sort of existential doubt, intellectual doubt, if you are looking for proof that God does not exist, Here's the tricky part. You'll find it. If that's the only thing you're looking for, you'll find it. You'll interpret everything in your life to automatically agree with that conclusion. Oh, I'm going through this suffering. Obviously, God doesn't exist. Oh, this person, this uh, religious or Christian person is a hypocrite. Oh, that means God doesn't exist. If you're looking for evidence to only prove what you already believe, you'll find it. And so the key is, When you ask for signs, you need to actually check your motives and see if you're actually open to the answers. Are you actually open to having some preconceived things challenged, changed, enlightened, expanded, or not? Which leads to the second point which is the second practical tip. If ever you are someone who, if you go out and you decide to ask God for a sign or ask God for something to sort of help you resolve your existential intellectual doubt, your second thing is not only check your motives, but make sure you're specific without being too literal. Be specific, but don't be too literal. Another way to put it, be specific without being too controlling as to what God has to do to prove God's real. I'll tell you, I'll share with you the most uh, powerful example in my life of this that ever happened. It happened in high school. So in high school, some of you know my story, you know that I didn't come to faith until I was about 16 or 17 years old. And when I did, um, I had this weird sort of dilemma because I was making all these like new devout Christian friends, but I also had a lot of uh, friends who had no desire or interest in faith. And so I lived in both worlds for a while. And so I'll never forget, I had one friend from this tribe who was like genuinely just fascinated. He was like, we used to party together all the time, and now you're like one of those Jesus freak people. I got a bunch of questions. Um, and so he, would, he was someone who I would say suffered from that first version of doubts, so like intellectually, existentially, just never could really get there and believe that even a God or a supreme being would exist. But he would ask questions. He would probe me and sort of challenge me, and it was so good for me, and I hope it was good for him. But I'll never forget this particular moment in our story. So in our story, uh, in our, my senior year, We're driving in the car, and I'll never forget, I gave him a Bible like six months earlier, and we're having one of these intellectual faith theology debates, you know, for the 47th time, and he says, listen, Kyle, I think at the end of the day, I'm just not going to believe unless God says it to my face, and he tosses the Bible onto the dashboard, not violently, like, not disrespectfully, just like, whoop, like sort of thing, drops me off. Three hours later, I get a phone call that he had been in an accident, like a really, really bad car accident. Sideswiped, and then went across the median, hit the oncoming traffic, and spun around, and then went into a ditch. So his car was totaled; it was demolished. He calls me after it happened because he's perfectly fine, no harm done to him, not even a scratch. He calls me. I show up to the accident, and he pulls me over to where the car is in the ditch, and it's getting like kind of like craned out of the ditch or whatever. And he hit me, and he goes, "Look," and he said, "The Bible that I threw on the dashboard never moved." He's like, could that be like a, I was like, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> he didn't say earlier that day, unless I get into a car accident and I ram into a wall and that Bible doesn't move, then I will believe. He just sort of left it open, right? Right? Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, I was talking to someone after first service who uh, was a physics major, and like, so for some of you, you're just like automatically like, well, actually, it's just sort of like, it's basic physics. Like, if you get hit at this direction, and then the inertia sort of spins you this around, and then you ram here, like, the Bible wouldn't have moved. Like, it's actually, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for that. Sorry. And to that, I would just say, maybe. Maybe. But... That day, that moment, that sign that God offered to me proved a lot of things. And I think chief among them, it proved what we've been sharing so far. That God's reaction to my doubts isn't to be offended. It isn't to distance himself from me. But God cares so much about me that God says, okay, if that's what my child needs, I'm going to move a little bit closer. And I'm going to meet them where they are. I'm going to incarnate myself once again in a way in which they can see, touch Feel and know that I am God. So maybe that's you. Or maybe that's someone you know. Maybe that's someone you know. Maybe maybe you're hearing this and you're like, man, this isn't me, but good Lord, this is my coworker. This is someone in my life who, or it's my child or someone. And what I would just advise you is, Uh, instead of spending the rest of your time trying to get into Facebook fights with them and trying to convince them that God is real, maybe, maybe, just maybe, a much better use of your time is to pray that God would do something like that in their life to reach them in precisely the way in which they need to be reached. Deal? Deal? I'm gonna be watching Facebook. Okay, so that's the first one. So maybe the first one's for you, or maybe it's the second one. Maybe it's the second one. Maybe when you were hearing that at the very beginning, you were like, whoo, yeah, the second type of doubt, that's the one that I've got some uh, encounters with. So maybe for you, it's not God's existence. Like, you believe God exists. You believe a God is out there, a supreme being is out there, but it's God's personality. Like, but like, who is this God? Like, again, I was given this picture of God. Uh, Maybe it was really legalistic, a very judgmental, a very violent, very angry God. I was taught a lot of things about who God is. But now I'm out in the world. Now I'm dealing with real people. Now I'm learning more. I'm getting educated on things like science and reason. And I'm finding that the picture that I was given doesn't line up. I was taught that all the people that I was supposed to exclude, I now am finding genuine kindness and fruits of the Spirit in them. And so I'm having a little bit of a crisis and trying to figure out who exactly is this God? What is he like? Who is Jesus really? Now, There's a buzzword for this. There's a buzzword for this that's circulating in sub-Christian culture uh, called deconstruction. How many of you have heard uh, the term deconstruction before? Okay. So deconstruction, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, it just refers to the spiritual exercise, the spiritual practice of evaluating the house, evaluating the structure that holds your beliefs about God, and deconstructing the pieces that don't line up with who the person of Jesus was. So you find stuff like, oh, well, if I believe in that, it makes me hypocritical, so i got to take that piece off. And that piece actually doesn't look anything like Jesus, so i got to take that piece off. And you try to rebuild something in its place that actually aligns with the person of Jesus. Now, if you're hearing this and you're like, whoo, that actually sounds like a rabbit hole I would love to go down because this is something that I've got a lot of experience with or I've had a lot of questions about. I've I've got people in my life who I know are going through this process Actually, I actually wrote an article. I wrote an article for Ministry Matters magazine called Five Tips for Healthy Deconstruction. I did this a couple of months ago in preparation for Lent. Five Tips for Healthy Deconstruction. So if you're watching this online, you can actually find this uh, in the sermon notes in the bulletin. You can also, if you're here in House, you can scan, find the bulletin, you can find a link uh, for that article if you're interested. I'm not gonna rehash all the five. I'm not gonna rehash all the five. But what I am gonna do and what I felt prompted to do was share with you the fifth one. The fifth one. Because in this article, one of the things that I try to encourage people to do, I try to help coach people to do, is when you find yourself going through this type of doubt, doubting not if God exists, but what you believe about God, one of the things I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to do is to do this with God, not to God. Do you hear the difference? When you go through the work of deconstruction, do this with God. Jesus. Not against Jesus or at Jesus. Why? Because friends, we all believe every single person in this room, we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. We also believe that Jesus has such a strong commitment to truth that he wants you to receive it because he knows that when you do you will be set free. So here's what I want you to do when you find yourself in that place. I want you to ask the question, is it possible Is it possible that this experience, this particular wrestling I'm having with doubt was brought on by someone else? Is it possible that this doubt, this wrestling that I'm going through, this deconstruction I'm doing, is it possible that it wasn't my idea? Is it possible that someone else has pushed me and encouraged me to engage in this process? Is it possible that the same one who throughout the Gospels would say this to his children with regularity, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Is it possible that when you're going through deconstruction, that's exactly what Jesus is doing? Is he saying, hey, Kyle, you heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. Maybe, just maybe. When you find yourself in the throes of these crises of faith, these deconstructive projects, maybe, just maybe, the very person who's driving that entire process is God himself. Because God is hell-bent on making sure that you and I encounter the real, true, authentic Jesus. And he ain't going to stop. Stop. Until we arrive at the clearest possible picture of who he is and what he's like. So again, if that's of interest to you, if that is a place where uh, you find yourself uh, at one point or another, uh, I want to uh, invite you. I want to invite you to to check that out because I think that could be a really, really uh, important uh, exercise for you. And type number three. Type number three. So maybe for you, uh, you've resonated with one of these first two. You've gone through a sort of existential doubt, intellectual doubt. Uh, maybe for you, uh, it was, it's more sort of uh, personality-based. It's more deconstructive-based. Or maybe for you, uh, this is the one that I believe that if you've not encountered the first two, I'm willing to, believe, uh, willing to bet that every single person in this room has experienced the third, which at one point or another, it is doubting the presence of God. Every single one of us. I don't care how holy you are, have had the experience of going through something so hard, something so dark, something so painful, something so fearful that you've questioned if God was even close, if God was even near. Every single one of us, maybe you haven't used these words, but you have gone out uh, in prayer and said, where the hell are you? You are you not paying attention? The situation's getting worse. Do I need to remind you? Do you need a memo of what's happening down here? Do you see all the pain that this is causing? Are you aware of all of this tumultuousness in our world? Are you doing anything? I'll share with you uh, what was uh, easily the most prominent example of this in my entire life. It happened about 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I was in college, and I went through um, what will go down, at least to date, as one of the hardest uh, seasons of my life. So I was uh, in the middle of college, and it was in the summertime. And after, so we had just come out of uh, my first stint as captain of the, the soccer team where we went to college, and we stunk. Oh, we lost a ton of games. I played awful, and I was just a really, really bad leader. So it was my very first experience with, like, public failure. And, like, people were watching me, like, oh, my Lord, that's the captain? Woo! I could play better than him. Um, So I'm coming out of this experience of failure. Then I go back home for the summer, and our family goes through a huge family falling out. It got so bad that I had to move out of my house for the duration of the summer and live with another church family for the rest of the summer. Some family I didn't even know. Thirdly, I have like a month left until school starts. So all my best friends, my community, my support system, they're not there. They're back in Indiana where I'm going to go back to school. So I'm not around them. I can't talk to them. I can't see them. I can call them, I guess, but I can't be around them. So I am feeling like a failure. I'm feeling like the foundations of my life, my family, have been broken and shattered. And I am lonely as all get out. And so my experience, my history with depression is not... Uh, chronic. Uh, some of you, uh, you you battle chronic depression, uh, and I think you are incredibly brave and incredibly courageous for showing up day in and day out. You get all of my respect. Depression for me doesn't happen chronically for me. It happens seasonally. It happens situationally, and on that season of life, to date, to date, has been the most depressed I've ever been. And I'll never forget during that season, while I didn't contemplate uh, physically harming myself, what I did contemplate and eventually decide to do was quit on Jesus. I was done. I was a super dramatic uh, teenager and college kid, so like I went out to a football field and had like a Dawson's Creek moment, uh, and it was just like, "Here I am, and we're done." But I was serious. I was serious. I said things to God like, I When I signed up to be a follower of yours, you promised you would provide for me. You promised you'd protect me. You promised you'd look out for me. You promised that you would be by my side. And I ain't got nothing to show for it. So we're done. And that lasted about nine days. Uh, Nine days. Here's what happened. So up until this point in my spiritual journey, I always knew up here. I always knew the passages like Romans chapter 8 that says there is quite literally nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not even death itself can separate you from the love of God. I knew, the, knew them up here. knew them up here. I also knew passages like Psalm 139 that said if you, if you ascend into heaven or if I make my bed in hell, even there you will find me. You will come and rescue me. I knew all of those scriptures up here. And then I knew a me. When I got a Facebook message one day from someone who I went to college with, who, um, so she sent me this message and she says, "Hey, Kyle, you don't know me, you don't know me, but uh, last semester you uh, preached at chapel, uh, and uh, I've been working up the courage to share with you that uh, that message that you shared uh, saved me. It saved my faith." And I was like. Mm-hmm. Nope, no, 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 no. She said, uh, I've actually been, I was going through a really, really difficult time with my family. Uh, I was experiencing some, some abuse uh, in regards, to emotional abuse in regards to my parents, which led me to leave home. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure, here we go. Sorry, I'm not laughing at her. I'm just laughing at like, holy cow, what's happening? Uh, and she says, and you shared, you shared in that message something that saved my faith and it's something that ministers to me every day Even to this day, because you said something that day, you said something to the line, something along the lines of, even if you let go of God, God will never let go of you. And I remember in that moment, walking away from my computer. Even my doubt, even my rebellion, even my disobedience, even my quitting on God would never, ever result in this God quitting on me. That I literally couldn't run fast enough, couldn't run far enough to outpace this divine parent who cared about me so, so much and so, friends, what I want to leave you with today is, is just this simple message that, you know, sometimes on Sundays, oftentimes on Sundays, what I do is I come up with and I craft, like, you know, all these tips and things to do, things you can, remedies you can uh, participate in, things you can exercise to sort of grow uh, your faith. But today I want to leave you with something very, very different. Today I want to leave you with the good news that there are going to be times in your faith when you actually don't have the power to believe again the way you used to. The pain's too deep. The pain's too real. It's too daggum hard. In the good news, and we sang this a couple moments ago during that offering song. That offering song was one of my favorite worship songs of all time. Reason to sing All Sons and daughters, Go listen to it. That at precisely the moment that you let go of God, God starts devising plans to reclaim you. And that is not just good news. It's the best news. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.